with whatever we design, your experience begins long before you walk through the door. In the healthcare setting, it begins when you feel the need to see a healthcare professional. Your experience can be positive or negative right there from the beginning. Confidentiality, respect, all of that gets wrapped into this holistic thinking about how to create the best design solutions to curate the patient experience. From NYC by Design, this is The Mic, a podcast that offers an inside look into New York City's most creative minds. I'm your host, Debbie Millman. From projects to products, inspirations, and more, Join us each episode as I talk to members of New York City's design community about what makes design so outstanding. This season, we're exploring the theme of Our Future City. We'll discuss how New York is being revitalized, reinvented, and rediscovered through design. From color palettes to material selection, design has the power to change both how we experience the world around us and how we experience ourselves. This is especially true in the healthcare space where design plays a critical role in shaping the industry and developing seamless patient experiences. On today's episode, we welcome guests Elaine Molinar and Susan Healy to discuss how design contributes to our positive well-being in seen and unseen ways. We will consider the innovations, ideologies, and impact of design that puts health and well-being first, envisioning more humane atmospheres to make for happier and healthier people in our future city. Our first guest is Elaine Molinar, an architect and managing partner of Snohetta's U.S. practice, an interdisciplinary design studio that takes an integrative approach to architecture, landscape architecture, and interior design. Elaine's focus on the issues of social and physical well-being drives her work not only as a design leader, but also as an employer and cultivator of Snohetta's growing practice. Elaine, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. Elaine, my first question is about your position at Snohetta. Could you tell us a bit more about the mission of the organization and its integrative approach to design? We've been a practice for over 30 years now, and we began as an uh, integrative practice, to use your phrase, based on the ideas that neither architecture nor the environment around us exists in a vacuum. They need to coexist in a, in a very positive way. So we've always had landscape architects and architects in our studio. And later on, we have had an interior design team and graphic design and, and product design teams all working together. No matter what the, the endeavor is, we're generally putting our collective uh, heads together and kind of setting aside our disciplinary knowledge at the beginning of a design process. How do you do that? How do you set that aside to have that sort of collaborative workspace? <laughs> you have to let go and remember that we are all individuals who experience the built environment as just as people and not, not always as just an architect or just a landscape architect. For example, we, we cross over those worlds as, as a human being in daily life. And, and it, it's important to kind of remember that while as, as valuable as that knowledge is, it can also be limiting in the beginning when you really need to just 
let go and dream and not, you know, not think about building codes and problems <laughs> uh, and put yourself in the mind of the people who use the work that we create. That's really important. Tell us a little bit more, if you can, about how these values first became so important to your organization and how they're embedded in your practice. How do you actually go about collaborating with transdisciplinary approaches to design? Well, we, we have a very open studio and when we form a design team, we, we all get together. And if, even if you're a student or a very young professional, uh, your voice is equally important. And to be able to get a diverse perspectives, our staff is a, quite a diverse group. We have people from all over the world in, in our studios and bringing their own cultural history and points of view to the table. That's very important. We also engage the work of outside expertise. It might be an anthropologist or an artist or a dancer or an ecologist. And hearing those viewpoints really helps inform our process. And you can see the result in our work in various ways. So, you know, we're creating an environment or a place that supports and nurtures individual and collective empowerment in the built environment. You can see in, in works such as the, the Library of Alexandria, it has a big plaza in front of it, where here in our culture and society, that's a pretty normal thing. But in Alexandria, that was a very unusual and unique type of space to promote public gathering. And I think we saw the great impact of that during the Arab Spring when everybody gathered in front of the library in that plaza and used it as a place to pray. I used, I used it to come together with uh, and people of all different political persuasions joined together to protect the library and that public space or the uh, roof of the Oslo Opera House. You know, you can actually enjoy it as a public amenity, even if you're not an opera goer or you're not a ballet enthusiast, or you can't afford to see a performance, you can still enjoy the public space. Before I talk to you a bit more about your philosophy and some of the projects that you've contributed to, can you tell us a little bit about your organization's origin of its name? Oh, Snohetta is the name of a mountain in central Norway. It's, I think, one of the highest, second highest maybe mountain in, in its region. It's a beautiful place, and we've actually gone there uh, as a group to experience the beautiful landscape there. It's a very important place in, in Norwegian culture and, and the landscape. It kind of emulates the fact that our, our work really is about place as opposed to an ownership of an idea or, or a company or anything like that. We are very connected to creating a strong identity in a sense of place and embracing the environment around us. One of your projects that I'd really love to talk about is Maggie's Cancer Care Center at the Aberdeen Royal Infirmary in Scotland, which is a space for those affected by cancer to come and be in community. Can you tell us a little bit more about the design and the ethos of that project? Yeah, just to zoom out a little, the Maggie Centers began in the mid-90s to honor a woman named Maggie Jenks, who created the, the idea, along with her husband, the architectural historian, Charles Jenks. And there are a number of Maggie Centers in the UK, and, and I believe in Hong Kong as well, and, and many of them designed by noted architects. And I think they all share a similar ethos in that it's creating a very warm and intimate and welcoming space 
And the, the design of the Maggie Center that we made, the walls of, of the building kind of reach out and grab you and embrace you and protect you. So it's, it's a safe haven. It's not a treatment center. So you might go there to get back on your feet and do a job search or have a counseling session or have some alone time that's not at home and uh, get a, ad, advice from healthcare professionals, but it's not in a traditional healthcare setting. It's very much a home type of setting. It has a lot of daylight and access to vegetation and gardens, and it's a very warm and welcoming place. How do you begin to conceive of a design that prioritizes both the function of the space and the visitor experience. You've talked a lot about the different projects so far that you've worked on where the public space as is as important, if not more important, than the interior, more personal space. I think with whatever we design that your experience begins long before you walk through the door. You know, I think uh, in the healthcare setting, it kind of begins when you feel the need to see a healthcare professional, you need to make an appointment. You need to kind of navigate your way through your benefits or, you know, whatever that is. It, it's a technology interface. In fact, you know, the, your, your experience can, can be positive or negative right there from the beginning. So I, again, I, I think when we started our conversation, I was talking about architecture doesn't exist in a vacuum and neither do its surroundings or its or its interior. So we really think very much about the function. Function, I think, is highly, sometimes highly underrated. But function is incredibly important, and we like to make the function of our work as straightforward and as simple as possible, so that it's very clear and understandable. So whether it's a museum or a library or, or an opera house, you don't go in and get disoriented. You're not disoriented. The, the design of the space itself is conducive to you feeling comfortable and knowing where you are and ha knowing where you are, not only in a building, but that larger area outside of the building. You know where you are in the city, you know where you are in, in the society that you've come together with. So orientation, daylight, those kinds of things are, are a really important design element. I recently had a, a rather unexpected medical procedure that required my being in a hospital overnight, which was the first time I had been in a hospital overnight for my own care since I was four years old. <laughs> so, so we're talking like <laughs> way over 50 years ago. And it made me really aware of the pitfalls of the patient experience. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little, a little bit about any philosophies you have about the ideal patient experience. What does that look like, an, an ideal patient experience in a space? Well, like you, I've also had my own experience as a patient and it was eye-opening. It's very different from just popping into a doctor's office. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> my perception is that very often healthcare facilities are volume driven as opposed to quality driven. And I'm sure a lot of that has to do with the cost of real estate and, you know, factors that really are outside of everyone's control. So aside from situations like the pandemic where it's all about volume, <laughs> volume care, generally I find that there's a lot of improvisation, a lot of makeshift and the design of healthcare is as critical uh, if not more critical for the staff, because they are there every day. They're there much longer than patients are, and they need to be able to come to work in 
a healthy and inspiring environment and one that, you know, I, I think the concept of pleasure and healthcare don't immediately come to mind as going together. But when your experience and your environment is pleasurable, that's when we learn. Pleasure is very conducive to learning and healthcare professionals need to learn every day at work, just like anyone else. And their environment needs to be um, designed for that. I mean, they, they need daylight, they need access to nature, they need clean air, they need um, acoustics, appropriate acoustics. They need all of those things just as much as a patient does. Yeah, I was really struck by the lack of design care around acoustics, which I think is something that, that most healthcare spaces have to contend with. Why do you think that the role of design in healthcare spaces are so overlooked? Well, <laughs> I don't know. There are heavy technology requirements or heavy equipment needs. And probably Susan can speak more knowledgeably about these issues than, than I can. But those logistics and, and needs for essential equipment are really important. And again, going back to the amount of available square footage per person and the cost of real estate, I think it has something to do with that there. Um, when we were designing a library here in the United States back in 2008, the librarian was an incredibly innovative woman and, and she wanted to change the service model. And that's not something that's immediately physically apparent to a normal user coming to the library. She didn't want their traditional service desk with the librarians behind it and you have to line up to go visit the librarian to get your book or whatever. First of all, that's a roadblock to a lot of people. People for first time library visitors, for example, that's can be intimidating. She looked to uh, like technology and other hospitality industries and got rid of that uh, kind of source model and librarians kind of roaming through the library looking looking for you. And, you know, kind of when you go to an Apple store, you can kind of do a transaction almost anywhere in any way. And uh, that service model really influenced the design of the physical space that kind of liberated the, the design requirements for the physical space. I think the same might be considered for healthcare. What is that service model? What's the philosophy of greeting people and initiating them through, you know, what are the thresholds? that feel good to go from your home or the parking lot to the room that you end up with and back out. Yeah, that patient journey is is something that I think is really, really ripe for a redesign. I have two more questions for you. I know that Snowheda also emphasizes a commitment to sustainability. Where and how do you think sustainability and healthcare intersect? Well, there are many types of sustainability, you know, social and cultural sustainability, I think would be something to talk about here. The, the integration and respect for nature and vegetation and having access to cross-ventilation and fresh air, I, I think are important. I, several years ago, I was in St. Augustine, Florida, and I was at one of the living museum structures, which in, I don't know when it was, the 1600s or so there was a medical facility where a lot of surgery happened and the British were having trouble with the patient survival and the Spanish had a greater rate, a much higher rate of survival of patients because 
they performed their procedures in a fraction of the time and they often did them outside, so on the balcony. And so patients recovered more because they were in fresh air instead of in a hermetically sealed room. So these are not new ideas. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing them with us. Elaine, my last question is, is this. We're approaching the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And Snowheda designed the September 11th Memorial Museum Pavilion here in New York City. Thank you for that. Can you talk a little bit about how the pavilion was designed to provide solace to the people of New York City? Sure. It, it occupies a very important position on the Memorial Plaza in that it, it is really the only building on the memorial itself other than some technical infrastructure. And it, it's what takes you down to the museum itself, which is below ground. I think for a lot of people, descending below ground is a daunting experience. And in this particular situation, even more so. And the, the content of the museum is, is quite heavy for many people. So the design of the pavilion was all about transitions, transitions from the normal hustle and bustle of New York City life and down to that very somber area of reflection. Daylight was a big factor there and how to how to mitigate that daylight and retain contact with the plaza and the trees in the plaza as you are descending down that grand staircase. The staircase is wide and generous and you can take your time. You don't have to rush and and there's an important artifact from the site itself that you can see midway on that staircase. So it, it's about transition. And after you've been to the museum, you're coming back up into the light. But the materials are warm and very few materials. There are very few things to focus on, glass and, and the ceiling, and, and that's it. There's you know not a lot of color or shapes or things to be aware of. You have a lot of glass and light to look outside through and and the warm material color and feel of the wood and, and very good acoustics, so very absorbent ceiling materials to the perforated uh, ceiling, the slat ceiling to help deal with the, the sound that a lot of people make because there's quite a lot of uh, visitors to that museum. Elaine Molinar, thank you so much for joining me here today on the mic. And if you could stick around for a bit, I'd love to have you rejoin our conversation after I chat with Susan Healy. Our second guest today is Susan Healy. She is the Executive Director of Design and Construction at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, a leader in advocating for patient-centered healthcare design in New York and beyond. Susan has earned many achievements from the Center of Health Design, the IIDA, and Interior Design Magazine's Best of Year in Healthcare, among many others. Thank you for joining us, Susan. Susan, my first question is a big one. Can you share with us how you decided to pursue a career in healthcare design? Yes. So I think what's really interesting about healthcare design, or maybe at the time not so interesting, was that it was a field that wasn't as glamorous as many of the others. And so really didn't have a huge following in terms of career paths. So certainly by accident, it was not intended. As many of us find, we follow our educational path and then we end up in places that we never anticipated we'd be. And that's, that was the case for me. I actually had an after-school job when I was in high school. And the firm that I worked for was a multidisciplinary design firm. So interior design, 
industrial product design and graphic design. What I think was great about that was that I had access to kind of this more holistic approach to design, much like Elaine has has described. And one of those disciplines was healthcare design. And much of the work that they, that this firm did involved both the healthcare design, but also looking at the signage and wayfinding that complemented that along with product design. So medical devices that supported the, the healthcare design and patient experience. So it piqued my interest and, and that's how I, I ended up following that path as a design consultant. The Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center has become a model for patient-centered health design. And I'm wondering if you can talk about how that came to be and how you would define that model so people listening could really understand why it's considered best in class and what that entails. Well, certainly from a clinical and research perspective, we are one of the top in the world. And when I first joined, which was about 10 years ago, there was a sense that there was really a need to pursue quality, first and foremost, in terms of the physical environment, but also to create these spaces that really supported the nature of our patient's illness. But what I did notice was that we had a variety of different locations. We're in New York City, which means that from a real estate perspective, we are very constrained. We have multiple sites in multiple locations around the city, but also outside of the city where we were looking to grow our uh, reach. And so what I saw was that we had these great little pockets of design as projects were developed individually, but there wasn't a cohesive and, and as I call it, kind of a common thread that tied all of these facilities together. So as patients went from location to location, it felt as though they were traveling to different providers and we weren't one. As time evolved, we have really grasped this concept of one MS MSK, meaning that everything we do should be considered as a whole and, and one. And so I've really kind of taken that on as a challenge in terms of the physical environment to bring all of our facilities together and to really help define what we call signature elements in each of those facilities that are recognizable. So as patients travel on their journey from location to location, whether it's coming to the main campus, let's say for surgery, but then having follow-up chemotherapy, in a regional location that's closer to where they live, the experience feels connected and the same. So I really am trying to convey that, not just as part of the physical environment, but also graphically, because our team also is involved in wayfinding and signage and environmental branding. So all of that is, is pulling together to create what we hope is the most progressive type of patient experience that we can provide. So I have a couple of questions regarding the signature elements and the most progressive experience. What are the signature elements that really thread the different office spaces or patient spaces together? And then how do you determine what direction to go in to develop those more progressive practices? 
Okay, so first, signature elements. Let's start there. I will use one example to explain exactly how we're approaching this, and that is something that was referenced earlier in your conversation with Elaine. Really, how do we think about the patient experience and the the first interaction, as Elaine mentioned, is is generally through technology, right? So they're looking at the website, they're making an appointment, but when they actually cross our threshold, what does that feel like? We're always looking to create what we call a warm welcome. So how do we do that? And many times what, what we've done in healthcare is very backwards. I mean, it was essentially in the past, our spaces were all designed to support the staff and the operations. They weren't patient focused. And so the architecture, the interior design all kind of followed that thinking. Well, you know, certainly in the past 20 plus years, we've tried to flip that. And now we're calling it patient centered, but somewhere along the line, we missed out on that. We should have started there. And so when a patient crosses that threshold, what is that greeting like? Many times it's a high 42 inch reception desk with a person who's sitting down, the patient's standing. There's this huge barrier that I always call a fortress in front of the staff. And it makes for a very transactional, almost banking-like experience that certainly is not warm in any way. So we really looked at that and said, how can we change that and, and re-engineer that so that it's a much more personal interaction? And so one of the signature elements that we created is what we call our beehive. So it's essentially a smaller, it, it's beehive shaped. So that's why we nicknamed it that station that a staff person will stand at. There's also in some cases what we call a beehive plus where there's a lower work surface that's more at desk height. So the interaction becomes more personal and less of, you know, there's this physical barrier between us. And, and it really helps to kind of break down mental barriers as well. And the staff will, will be a little bit more mobile and come out and meet with patients. We also have a technology that allows us to put a device, it's more or less a tracking GPS device on patients and their caregivers so that we can find them in the waiting area. So they'll check in at the Beehive, they will go sit down in a waiting area and our staff can find them without having to shout out, Debbie, where's Debbie in the waiting area? Which again, is very impersonal and kind of feels more like DMV than a healthcare experience. It's those types of things that we've envisioned and implemented to create signature elements that we've duplicated in our facility. That sounds really, really necessary. And I hope that anybody listening to this that works in healthcare design begins to uh, incorporate some of these ideas. My most recent experience, as I was saying to Elaine, when I checked in for my follow-up, I was handed a clipboard with a pen tied to the clipboard with a piece of string. <laughs> to to fill out my forms. And I was like, wow, can't we do better than this in 2021? We can, and we're trying. And that, that leads to your next question. Yes. The progressive nature. Again, I think really we need to think about things holistically, which is what we've done, because the the design of the, the environment, the built environment can't carry this off all on its own. 
we have found that both technology and the operational effect processes are really so important. And, and this triad approach has really helped us because it takes operational changes to allow for check-in and check-out in a lounge-type seating area. It takes technology, mobile technology, to enable that. And then the physical environment has to support all of that in creating these areas of seating that feel somewhat private, but aren't in a room per se, and are not happening over a desk where people are feeling like their personal information is overheard. So confidentiality, respect, all of that gets wrapped into this this holistic thinking about how to create the best design solutions to really curate the patient experience. And staff training is key in all of that as well, so that we are greeting people in a more personal way, as opposed to a throughput type of perspective. So, So that's how we've kind of framed things, and that's the criteria. And so everything that we look at in terms of design gets filtered through that lens as we move forward on projects. As we've seen throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, hospital workers and healthcare staff continue to be overwhelmed and often devastated by the effects of COVID and, and now especially with the Delta variant. How are you seeing healthcare design begin to cater to the needs of the staff, the healthcare staff in any environment? Given that we're a cancer center, our staff has been experiencing much of that for years. I mean, just the fact that they they are seeing patients who may or may not make it every day, pediatric patients, it's a lot for a human being to, to see on a daily basis and experience. And so we have really tried to focus on creating spaces for staff where they can kind of step away And many times they need to gather themselves before they go back out and see patients again, because the emotional piece of this is so critical to supporting. As an example, we created a building several years ago. It's an ambulatory surgery center that provides a space that we call the loft, which is the top floor of the building with an outdoor terrace that is dedicated solely to staff. What that says to staff and messages to staff is that MSK cares about you. We care about our patients, certainly, but we care about you and your health and health and well-being. And what was exciting about that is, and I don't know how much you know about this, but this is kind of behind the scenes in healthcare is generally in lounges. They're very hierarchical where surgeons have their own lounge. They may have their own dining area. And and there's this kind of almost class structure that has been established for for years, for decades. And so we wanted to break that down. And because this building is a smaller footprint and it's kind of its own ecosystem, we said, let's try something new where this loft area becomes a haven for all staff. So from techs to surgeons, and they intermingle. And what we found is that we've got this great communal table in the kitchen area. 
that they sit, they bring their lunch, people sit together, they take a break, and there's this communication that's happening. And so as a result of that, these great ideas are coming out. There are conversations that are happening that had never happened before because they were located separately. But now with this cross-pollination, we're finding that there are these amazing synergies that are happening. And while we hoped they would happen, we're really seeing it, it come to fruition. So we're so excited about that. And it's been a great model for us to take to any of the new projects or renovations that we've undertaken as well. That sounds amazing. It sounds like you're really taking the emotional and mental well-being of the healthcare workers into account as much as the physical well-being of both healthcare workers and patients. Well, we also know that when our staff are happy, that translates over to the patients. So it's just, it's a smart way to look at things. Thank you. I'm really optimistic about the future of what can be done in healthcare spaces. And it would be extraordinary if healthcare design was really as examined, investigated, and researched as all aspects of environmental design. I'd like to ask Elaine Molinar to rejoin us so we can all talk together. Elaine, welcome back. My first question for you both is this. As we continue to, to contend with COVID and its various variants, well-being is more, more relevant than ever. And we just began to touch on that in, in my conversation with Susan. I'm wondering if your definition of well-being has changed or evolved as a result of the pandemic, or even just the place that well-being has in the healthcare environment. I mean, I know now from Susan sharing about this communal space. I mean, that's that's a wonderful thing. I'm wondering if there are other things that are now being considered or reconsidered to think about what well-being means in a healthcare space, both for practitioners and patients. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that most people use healthcare facilities when they need to and not necessarily because they want to. And the choices of where they go are, are made, might be based on location or, or what their, their benefits or lack of benefits dictate. So it's not necessarily about design. So I agree with both of you completely that design considerations need to be considered across the board, you know, not, not just here and there. Design for healthcare as an industry needs to consider design as something that's not a luxury and should be an essential baseline for everyone. Avoiding burnout, you know, we've seen quite a lot of burnout and because of the high volume and the serious nature of the pandemic, what about design can, can help there? I think having, again, access, we need, sometimes we need distraction. So we need access to, to nature, whether it's indoors, plants, or, or being able to step outside in the fresh air. Art can play a really significant and meaningful role to give someone a moment of respite. Um, airports figured that out a while ago. I remember that the San Francisco airport has this wonderful gallery that, of vitrines that they change periodically, which takes a lot of the anxiety out of 
traveling and that process. I, you know, I think that's equally important when everyone is experiencing distress, patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, there's a high level of anxiety on the outset. So I, I think art can play a meaningful role in, in alleviating that. Susan, I'd love to know what you think as well. Well, there are a couple of things. So in the past, I mean, certainly we're a healthcare organization. And so everyone thinks as, as such, we only have clinical areas, but we, we have a breadth of, of space types from public spaces to retail, to dining, to workplace. And while we are always very careful in our material selections for clinical spaces, certainly for cleanability, infection control, durability, all those good things, bleach cleanability, we had not really considered that for workplace. And post-pandemic, you know, people who have been working remotely and are now thinking about returning to work soon are very anxious about what those spaces will look like, how clean they will be, how close they will be to their coworkers. And so we've started integrating those same materials into the workplace. And we think it's the way to go. It gives people a sense of security. We, we kind of set the expectations. Here are the things that we're doing for your return to work. So I think that's, that's one side of, of this. In terms of patients with a diagnosis of cancer or with any other condition, there is anxiety. And I've heard in the past that being admitted into a hospital is very similar to being sent to prison. You know, you, you have your clothing taken away, all your belongings are more or less taken away. You're given these flimsy gowns. You've lost a sense of control, of power. And so we are always looking to kind of figure out how to restore that power to patients and empower them more so that they feel at least they have a sense of, of control for some things. I mean, as simple as like window treatments, room temperature, lighting controls, those kinds of things. We're doing a lot also with technology at the bedside, at the chair side in chemotherapy so that people can order from our retail space. They can order food. They can go online. We have an ability to FaceTime with your physician with the, the consult and bring your family in. If they can't be in town because of COVID, they can join the consult and feel like they're part of the care journey. So I think that there are so many different disparate ways of dealing with this because there are so many needs and there's so much anxiety out there and change. That's the other piece. We're, we're dealing with a lot of change. Our staff is dealing with new protocols for PPE and protecting themselves and patients, as well as all of our, our support staff that are not in the clinical environment. They're dealing with a lot of change. We're looking now to do this workplace transformation effort to reconsider now that we've been remote, how much real estate do we really need for that? Can people do a hybrid schedule? Can some people permanently work remotely? I, I think just the emotional side of that is, is really so undefined and evolving that that's that adds yet another layer of anxiety and we've also tried to support our staff with programs like integrative medicine programs you know we have our classes that we can take online there are classes that are clinical 
teams are able to access for just a quick little like meditation and breathing exercise. Take a moment to just de-stress yourself before you go back out to the clinical areas. It's a broad range of solutions and challenges that we're facing. Is MSK on the forefront of this movement to evolve the patient experience, or are you seeing this sort of across the board? Certainly it's across the board, but but we're trying to push the envelope. And really, our question is always, why not? Our consultants generally have healthcare design backgrounds, the architects and designers, and that kind of limits them in a way. So we've also brought in new collaborators and consultants who have not worked in the healthcare industry before to bring fresh perspective and think about different industries that are doing things in a more progressive way that may have some benefits in health. Just as an example, we brought in a firm that did airport work because we realized that there is this parallel experience in waiting for your flight that has a level of anxiety and you don't want to miss your flight and you're waiting by the gate because you don't want to, but you need something to eat. So the the airline industry has really thought about this and now they're To their benefit, they're monetizing the gates, they're bringing food, they're bringing retail. Those things are coming to the the passenger as opposed to the passenger going to those things. The same thing happens in healthcare. Patients come for an appointment, they don't want to be forgotten, so they sit near the desk and they're tethered. So what we're doing is with this GPS technology that I mentioned, we're allowing them to roam. They can go wherever they want to. They can go grab some coffee. They can walk through, you know, we have really significant art programs that we've created. There's an art walk. They can do that. They can go outside on the terrace and and feel comfortable in knowing that our staff can find them when they're needed. I see restaurants are beginning to do that too. And it sort of amazes me that it's taken so long for these types of innovations to occur. As you've been working with consultants, has there been any insight that has surprised you in terms of thinking, you know, why hasn't this been looked at before? Or, wow, that was much easier to do than we than we expected, and why don't we do that 10 years ago? Well, I think what's really funny is that one of our leaders, when we first started bringing in these these outside consultants, said to them, make us uncomfortable, like push us so far that you make us uncomfortable. And they did, which got us to a point where they were too uncomfortable. So we kind of had to scale back a little bit. And, you know, certainly there are criteria that we have to maintain that that's different than, let's say, you would have in a hospitality environment. So I think that To answer your question, there have been things that have been really simple that we are able to just kind of pivot towards, and then other things that we wish we could do, but just from a budget standpoint, we can't take it that far. So we're trying to find a a middle ground and a balance, certainly, and we're trialing things because we want to get feedback. I mean, are these really successful? How do we know if they're working? How do we know if they're not working? And so patients are really important in giving us that feedback. So we're soliciting that too. And then course correcting as we go. This is a question for both of you. Do you think that there are any misconceptions about designing for health and wellness 
that you would like to see corrected? I think many industries, it's not limited to healthcare, see the role of design as a luxury, as opposed to a basic requirement for human dignity and well-being. You know, that, that it's all about high-end materials or, or objects, and, it, and it, it simply is not the case. It is fundamental function and beauty are fundamental to needs of human experience that transect all aspects of life. Susan, what about you? Any misconceptions? Yeah, I, I think that because we're, we're so dependent on equipment, medical equipment and technology, that that always comes first. And mm. the feeling is, okay, if we got that MRI in there, then that's all we need. But when you think about it from a patient's perspective, walking into that room, that is a scary piece of equipment. And so we're doing things like using virtual reality to create these models, VR models that we can provide to patients before they actually come for a procedure so that they can get an understanding of what to expect. And that in itself, like, you know, knowledge is power, gives them kind of an expectation of what's going to happen to them as opposed to just walking in that room and kind of feeling like, wow, this is scary. So I think there are things like that that can, can mitigate as well. I have one last question for you both. It's very important to me. When do you anticipate there will be a redesign of the hospital gown? <laughs> Not soon enough. I actually was part of a team at, at a former hospital that I worked for where we did that. We engaged fashion designers to come up with patient gowns. We ended up with Cynthia Rowley, who designed a whole suite of, of fashions for us, from kids' pajamas to women's like nursing gowns for maternity. So it's possible and much more respectful in terms of the fabric quality and coverage. It's not an easy design solution though. I will no, tell you I, the, I the laundering is yeah. really difficult and high temperatures and all that good stuff. But I would love to see more color and and bold patterns or no patterns. You know, those those pastels and those tiny little repeated patterns really drive me crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it would be nice if if they tied in the front too. <laughs> You know, I think design is good design is a basic human right now, and it should be table stakes in any environment where people are interacting. And I think this would be an interesting place to reconsider how design is being utilized. I'm with you. I would also add furniture to that. Yes. Uh, healthcare furniture is not appealing <laughs> in any way. We should make a list of all the things that need to be redesigned. So I take it back. It's not really my last question. What do we need to do now to sort of guarantee a future that ensures good design is emphasized in health and, and the well-being sector? I think it's going to be grassroots. I mean, it's got to come from the patients. And it's we're already seeing that, certainly. Patients have a choice. It's not like it used to be where your family physician makes the recommendations. People have access to information. They're doing their homework and their due diligence. And those choices, really, I, there's a lot of competition, especially in, in the cancer care world. 
And so we always have to have some sort of differentiator and, and great clinical care isn't always what people are after. They want convenience and they want the ability to, you know, go to, to a place in their community. So we have to think about how to position ourselves in the market. I think also we saw last year, especially, but I, it goes back a little bit further, bringing healthcare into the home. So having the, the kind of virtual appointments, being able to stay at home longer and is a way of kind of making, making, making that care process much, much easier, less stressful. I would love to see more of that. How much does it make sense to bring healthcare into the home? Well, thank you both so much for joining us today on NYC by Designs The Mic. Thank you to Elaine Molinar and Susan Healy, who have so thoughtfully shared their insights and experiences and ideas with us here today. Join me next month to talk even more design on the mic. Follow at NYC by Design on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and subscribe to our newsletter for the latest in New York City design.